This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction upon our study. Father, we're thankful that you have given us God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, but he is the one who, when in fellowship, fills us with the uh, teaching of your word. He is the one who stores it in our soul. He is the one who recalls it to mind for us that we might choose to apply it and thereby grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study your word today, the very thinking of Jesus, we pray that you would enable us to understand these things and put these things together as God the Holy Spirit puts together uh, what we have learned before with what we learned today, and that uh, as this takes place over time, our spiritual growth uh, develops, our maturity develops, and we learn to think and respond to life the way you would have us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, although we'll only be here momentarily, we'll spend most of our time in 2 Corinthians 5. So you might uh, also put your uh, put a little marker there as we go back and forth. But before we go very far into the uh, message, our continuation of Colossians, I've been asked a question several times, and one came in yesterday via email, and I thought that in light of at least one line in a song that we sang this morning, that I would address this. As we sang in our first hymn, we sang in the, let's see, in the third line, uh, praise the Lord, the Prince of glory over all be magnified, perfect man and God united, royal heir now glorified. And then the next line, King of kings and son of David, Lord of lords forevermore. Now, the question that I've been asked before is we sing one hymn, All Hail the Power. Another hymn we sing is Crown Him with Many Crowns. There's a couple of other hymns that we sing that speak of Jesus as king. And I've made a point before that Jesus is not king right now. He is reigning. I mean, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father on the Father's throne. He does not take his own throne, and he is not given the kingdom until he returns at the second coming. Now, there are those who've heard these hymns and go, well, wait a minute, how can we sing these hymns? They don't seem to jive with what you've taught. And we have to learn to think about hymns as poetry. There's always a little license in poetry. There's license in, in even the Psalms, because in poetry there is a, a more fluid use of language 
and a more fluid use of uh, figures of speech. It doesn't mean that the doctrine is fluid. It is just that there is a a certain uh, literary license that takes place within the context of uh, of poetry. The other thing you have to exegete when you exegete a passage or you exegete a a hymn is you have to understand the context of the of the hymn. For example, if you read through some of these some of these lines and some hymns, the writer is actually putting us into a future place. He is not talking about Jesus as king of kings now. That's not what is being stated here in this particular uh, line. It is talking about who Jesus will be when he returns. It is a, you know, the fancy word for it it's, is proleptic. And you find this even in the scriptures. For example, as we've studied in our study of Colossians, that we are transferred from the, from the authority of Satan into the kingdom of his beloved son. But as I pointed out when we read through that passage, the kingdom does not begin until Jesus returns. Paul is talking about the fact that at salvation, we are identified with Christ, identified with that future destiny that he has as the king of kings when he rules in his kingdom, and when we will reign with him uh, in that kingdom. So it is a future sense. It is we're transferred into the kingdom doesn't mean it's now, it is, but that is our destiny. We'll see that usage again in a few coming passages as well in, uh, in our study of Colossians. And just to point out another aspect of this is, is for years I wasn't sure about singing the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. Uh, if you look at the second line in Joy to the World, it reads, uh, this is number 125 in your hymn book, it reads, Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. But that's, he's not t- talking about today. How do I know that? Well, this hymn was written by Isaac Watts, and I changed my mind on this when I came to understand that Isaac Watts was a premillennialist. There was no already not yet view of the kingdom at, at his particular time. You were either an amillennialist and, and viewed the kingdom as present, or you were a premillennialist and viewed the kingdom as totally future. And so when he wrote that, he is placing himself in the position of of uh, the hymn writing joy to the earth, the Savior reigns because Jesus, when he was born, was presented as what? The king of the earth, the future king. That's who he was came to uh, offer himself as the king, the Messiah uh, for Israel. We also sing a hymn, crown him with many crowns and the lamb upon his throne. But we know that's not now. That doesn't take place till future. So same thing with all hail the power. These are hymns that place us within a future context. They're not talking about the king, Jesus being the king and ruling as the king now, but this is where we are headed. They place us in a future context when, that takes, when that, those events take place. So we have to understand that, that hymns are, there's a difference between poetry and legal literature. You do not interpret a, uh, a sonnet by Shakespeare quite the same way that you interpret the contract you signed with Bank of America or Chase Bank or whoever you have your credit card with or whoever you have your home mortgage with. Uh, different types of literature have different uh, different 
nuances, let's say, or shades of meaning in relationship to interpretation. It is not that you shift from literal to non-literal. It's that you have to understand uh, that there are different different uh, contexts, different kinds of literature uh, are shaded a little differently. So uh, when you sing hymns, think about what the writer is saying there. Is he talking about a current, present reigning of Jesus? And some do, and that's wrong. Or is he talking about putting us in a future context when he will reign and when he will be king of kings and lord of lords? It's very important as I stress all the time, to pay attention to not only the words of the hymns that we sing, because most people have bad theology because they sing hymns with bad theology, but also we are to pay attention to the music as well. All right, we're studying in Colossians. For those of you who are visiting, who are not have not been with us in this study, we are studying this epistle which focuses our attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the sufficient one. By that, uh, Paul is emphasizing that because of who Jesus is as the eternal Son of God and the eternal uh, Creator, uh, as that emphasizing that role he had within the Trinity, that he is sufficient to handle any situation, every problem in life, and that there is no need to add either legalism from a misapplication of the Mosaic law or some sort of mystical ritualism to what we have uh, in Jesus Christ. He is all-sufficient. As Paul develops his uh, teaching on Jesus, he has moved from Jesus as creator in verses uh, 15 to 18 to his ability because of who he is to reconcile all things, he created all things, to reconcile all things uh, to the Father. And so we find ourselves in this section dealing with reconciliation from ver- verses 19 uh, through 21. We will then get into some really interesting uh, uh, material in verses 22 to 23. So in this section, what we've done is we've looked at other key passages related to reconciliation. Colossians 1.20, Paul writes, and by him, that is by uh, Jesus, uh, to reconcile all things to himself. So God the Father working through Jesus reconciled all things to himself, and by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, that includes everything, having made peace, or it should be understood as a as a, um, a causal participle there, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Now, the word reconciliation here and in Ephesians 2.16 is this word apokatalasso. It's a compound word. The root is katalasso. And if you just think of one word as a, as a synonym for this, think of the word exchange. Exchange. The root meaning of katalasso went back into uh, went back into classical Greek, and the, the root word was used, for example, I experienced this a few times this last week when I was down in Mexico, is exchanging money. Any of you who've traveled overseas, you go somewhere and you exchange your dollars for whatever uh, the coin of the realm is in that particular country, whether it's pesos or grievance or euros or shekels in Israel, whatever it is. It's that exchange of one thing for another. That's the root meaning 
in katalaso. And so from that it came to mean uh, to reconcile. The addition of this apa prefix here means to reconcile completely, totally. Nothing is left out. Nothing is left undone by Jesus' work on the cross. He is, his work on the cross is complete. It is sufficient. Now, I understand that last week when Dr. Meisinger was here, he talked about the Scripture as being sufficient. And this concept of sufficiency means it's enough. Nothing needs to be or can be added. Uh, But there's another aspect of this, and that is the aspect I've emphasized in the past of exclusivity. Not only is Jesus sufficient, he's the only one who is sufficient. He is the only solution in terms of salvation. Now, I also pointed out that the same word, apokatalasso, is used over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, that he might reconcile them both, and that's a reference to Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. From there, I developed a short definition of reconciliation, that it is the work of God for man. God does the work of reconciliation. We can't do that. Now, the word reconciliation is also used in the Scripture in context where two people have fallen out, where one person has offended another person. And in that context, the person who has offended the other person is told to be to reconcile with them. Well, in a case of human relationships, if I have offended somebody, then I can go to them and I can reconcile the situation. But in the case of our relationship to God, there is nothing that we can do as human beings to bring about that reconciliation. It is totally a work of God. So reconciliation is the work of God on behalf of man or for mankind in which God undertakes to transform man's position of hostility to peace. We are been in the position of hostility, and God is now going to exchange or change that relationship to one of peace or harmony. So that would be one idea. A shorter definition would be that reconciliation means a change of the status of the relationship with God from hostility to harmony. And so it, that, that on a, there's two aspects I've pointed out. We'll get into that more today. An objective aspect, which is what God does, and a subjective aspect which is realized in each of us individually when we trust in Jesus Christ. So that reconciliation was accomplished forensically or legally uh, once and for all by Christ on the cross, and it is applied to each believer uh, positionally only when an individual has trusted in Jesus Christ as a Savior. So just to summarize what we've seen so far is that the human race is in a legal state of hostility toward God because of Adam's sin. That doesn't mean that every human being is angry or personally hostile to God. Now, Romans 1 teaches that because of sin, uh, there are those who reject God and they become more and more hostile to God. We see some of that right now in terms of this day of prayer issue that's come up. Uh, When this day of prayer was first announced by the governor back in the first part of uh, June, all of a sudden you had a whole series of 
of uh, liberal atheist groups come out of the woodwork as usual and file lawsuits and try to stop it and claim that it's a separate, it's a violation of the separation of church and state. Now that just shows their ignorance in a couple of different areas. And they know they're ignorant, but they've managed to promote the big lie long enough that the average person in America actually believes that the phrase separation of church and state is found in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights. And it's not. That phrase derives from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote when he first became president to a Baptist congregation in uh, our actually Association of Baptist Churches in Danbury, Connecticut. And in there he was... He was uh, uh, simply uh, in, uh, encouraging them, answering a question they had asked because of, uh, of the election of certain people. They were afraid that, that th- they would lose their autonomy. And so he was encouraging them that know that the government was not going, the federal government would not interfere with uh, the desires, the practices uh, that they had in their church. So he used this phrase of a separation of church and state, but that's not a term that is found anywhere in the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. But it has entered into our legal language because of error on the part of the judiciary, including the the liberal Supreme Court uh, that was uh, uh, in the late 40s has brought that term into legal language. So, you know, there is... uh, this, this whole issue of hostility toward God, and you see this when these anything like this comes up, these groups pop up because they just want to get God out of the marketplace of ideas. And so they every time anybody, anybody who's a public official mentions the word of God, they jump up. And it just shows that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and any time anybody pulls back the uh, closet door, as it were, uh, showing the... Showing the uh, uh, the ghosts in their closet, they scream and try to shut the door real fast because they don't want to have their conscience pricked by uh, the work of God in common grace. So um, there are individuals who become more and more hostile to God, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the fact that once Adam sinned, the human race, those who are descendants of Adam, are in a legal position of hostility toward God. They are at enmity uh, toward God because of Adam's uh, original sin. Adam's original sin, we must remember, didn't affect just Adam and his progeny, but it also affects all of inanimate creation within the universe. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 20 talks about how the creation groans under the curse. So everything within creation is affected by Adam's sin. This is why uh, Paul emphasizes in Colossians 1, uh, 20, that it was by Jesus that God reconciled all things to himself. Second point we learned from our study is that no fallen human being can change this state of hostility. We are within that state. We can't do anything to change it. Third thing we, I pointed out is that the opposite of hostility is peace, so that when reconciliation is spoken of, it is always spoken of as well within this context of peace. Ephesians 2.14 stated that he himself is our peace. Uh, 
Romans 5.1 says, having been justified, we now have peace with God. There is that harmony that is restored because of reconciliation. So fourth thing that we've learned is that there must be a change of status. The legal penalty must be paid. The legal status has to be changed for peace. And then fifth, this payment is through death. That is the coin of the realm that is being exchanged here is death. It is the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Then last time we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 as a foundational chapter on reconciliation. And in verses 13 through 16, I just want to point out a couple of things. There we read that, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The term blood of Christ is a metaphor for his death. Now here Paul is talking about the horizontal relationship between Jew and Gentile. The Jews were closer to God because they had the promises They had the Old Testament scripture. They had the prophets, which the Gentiles did not have. So that Gentiles now have been brought near to um, Jews by the blood of Christ. It is a death for all. For he himself is our peace, who's made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Here he's talking about the wall of separation that not only separated Jew and Gentile, but also separated Jew and Gentile from God. And verse 15, he abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. So this this enmity here is talking about the enmity between Jew and Gentile generated by the observance of the Mosaic law. But that's a different enmity than what we have in verse 16. Uh, That enmity is removed by the removal of the issue of the commandments and the law And then in verse 16, we read that he might reconcile them, that is both Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And that enmity is the enmity that state that exists between God and man. And this then takes us to the next major section that we need to uh, investigate, and that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 18, there we read, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, what we observe here again is the same thing we saw in Colossians and Ephesians, that God is the subject of the action of reconciliation. God the Father is the one who reconciles us, He performs all of the work. He reconciles us to himself through Jesus Christ. And as a result of that having been accomplished, he then has given or delegated to each one of us the ministry of reconciliation. So we need to understand this. You have been given and I've been given Not just pastors, but every believer has been given this ministry, a responsibility of pronouncing, proclaiming the reality of reconciliation. So I want to, before we go further there, I want to go back and take a look at the grace solution here in terms of understanding this barrier that was removed by Jesus Christ as referenced in Ephesians. Now, this was always one of my favorite doctrines when I was young, is I just thought this was so tremendous to understand 
uh, everything related to the gospel via this particular uh, illustration, that there is a barrier that exists between man and God. This barrier was not there when God originally created Adam and Eve. That barrier was erected at the instant that Adam disobeyed God. Not the woman's disobedience, but Adam's disobedience because he was the responsible agent. He was the one God designated as the ultimate authority in the garden, and he was the head of the home and head of the family. And the instant that Adam sinned, this barrier was erected between man and God. Man became unrighteous. He became a sinner. God, who is perfect righteousness and perfect justice, could not have a relationship with man. This is indicated by the fact that when God came, as he did every day, to fellowship with Adam and Eve and to teach them, uh, God, when God came, they ran and hid from him, and they tried to cover up their nakedness by uh, making uh, garments of fig leaves. And we understand this concept of separation, this barrier, even from the Old Testament. Isaiah 59, verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Isn't that interesting? How many times have you heard some of the uh, secular media castigate some pastor or some preacher because he has said that non-Christians cannot get their prayers heard by God. This is a Jewish scripture. This is an Old Testament Hebrew scripture that says that iniquities, sin, separates man from God, and one result of that is that God doesn't listen to our prayer. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Just because you're a nice, wonderful person and just because your soul is filled with sincerity doesn't mean that God will listen to anything you say in prayer. Now, we recognize that when you have these sort of uh, cultural days of prayer that are called by uh, various politicians, and that's been a tradition in this country since the original Continental Congress, is to call upon uh, the citizens to observe a day of prayer. We all, it has always been recognized that there are some citizens whose prayers will not get any higher than their follicle line. There are others whose prayers won't get any higher than the ceiling. And there are others who, because they understand what the Scripture teaches about prayer, follow the protocols of prayer in the Bible, and their prayers will be efficacious. James says that the prayers of a righteous man are efficacious. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that there are those who either as believers who have unconfessed sin in their life will not have their prayers heard, or they are unbelievers, their, their sins have not been dealt with, and their prayers will not be heard. And this is one of those passages. The emphasis here is on a separation of man from God. Now, if we look at this verse in detail, it is in parallelism. It's poetry again. Uh, your iniquities, the your is plural, but y'all's iniquities, and the word iniquity here is the Hebrew word avon, and it's in the plural. It's rarely in the plural. It's only in the plural when the speaker is speaking of the collective group and that each, and, and speaking of their sins in a 
non-collective sense. Now, let me try to explain that. In a number of passages, for example, in uh, Genesis 15:16, again later in 1 Kings 17:18, you have the word avon used in a collective sense. For example, in Genesis 15:16, when God had promised the land to Abraham, He said, "But you're not going to get it yet, because the iniquity of the Amorites." Notice I said iniquity, not iniquities plural. The iniquity of the Amorites, that is the Canaanites who were living in the land, has not reached its end yet. So there uses it's a iniquity or avon is used in a collective sense to refer to all of the sin. But when you're talking about a group of individuals, it's not just your iniquity, meaning all of your individual sins, but if I'm talking to two or more people, then I have to put the your in plural as well as the iniquity word in plural. And so that's what uh, Isaiah is saying here is that he's talking to Israel. He says, all y'all, you know, that's the plural of y'all if you didn't know that. All y'all, everybody in Israel has iniquities. And because of their the, the uh, idolatry that has permeated their culture, that has separated them from their God. And then he expands on that and says, your sins, and it's a different word there, it's hatat, which means you're, uh, you've missed the mark of God's standard. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. There's a barrier that exists between man and God, and that is made up of sin. Now, it's not that simple. It's simple, so simple, you can explain it this way to anyone that sin separates you from God. But as we get into the Scripture, what we discover is that sin itself has a complexity of sub-issues. And each of those sub-issues is resolved by different aspects of Christ's death on the cross. So let's break this down just briefly. I will run through this. We have sin itself separates man from God. When uh, in Romans 3.23, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin separates man from God. Isaiah 64.6 says, All we like, all we, excuse me, we all are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. In other words, the best that we can do is still like a filthy rag in God's sight. There is a legal penalty for sin. In Genesis 2.17, God warned Adam that in the day that he would eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that day he would die. There would be a penalty assigned. It was spiritual death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. There, every person is physically alive but spiritually separated from God because of that legal penalty. Uh, then we have a third aspect, which is the character of God. Uh, Romans 8.8 8 says that those who are in the flesh, that is living on the sin nature, cannot please God because uh, there's a character problem. God's perfect righteousness cannot have fellowship with that which is unrighteous because Psalm 33.5 says he loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 37.28, God, the Lord, loves justice. And Psalm 7.11, we read, God is a righteous judge 
and a God who has indignation every day. So there is this state of hostility that exists because the perfect justice of God cannot have fellowship, cannot associate with that which is not also perfectly righteous and perfectly just. This is clearly stated, as you see, from all of these psalms out of the Hebrew Scriptures, out of the Old Testament. Now, when we look at these first three blocks in the barrier, I want you to notice that they all are Godward. They all focus on problems related to God's integrity, to his justice and his righteousness. Now, the next three bricks that we'll see in the barrier do not relate to a Godward problem, but rather a manward problem. And that is that because of the fact that we're born spiritually dead and under condemnation, we are, we lack righteousness. All our, our righteousnesses, as Isaiah 64, 6 says, are as filthy rags. They are just, un- the best that we can do is complete filth, garbage, uh, like medical waste, biomedical waste, just rejected by God. Uh, the second aspect of the manward consequences are spiritual death. We are born spiritually dead. This is different from the penalty. That's the legal penalty assigned to Adam. This is the experiential reality that each of us has because when we're born, we are born spiritually dead. Romans 5, 14, 5, 17, and 5, 21. 5, 17 says, For if by the transgression of the one, that is Adam, Death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 1, Paul says we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're born spiritually dead, and that problem has to be resolved. Then last of all, our position in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says that for as in Adam all die. They, this is talking about the eventual consequences because they're born in a state of spiritual death. Eventually there is, if there's not regeneration, not a change in that status, then they will go into eternal condemnation. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So we have the Godward problems are the three bricks at the bottom. The manward problems are the three bricks at the top. Now this barrier is removed, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, by the cross. The cross wipes out the barrier. And it does so point by point through different different aspects. The first has to do with uh, unlimited Atonement, unlimited atonement. For example, in Hebrews uh, 2.9 says, But we do, we do see him who is made a little lower, uh, a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste, that is, experience fully spiritual death for everyone. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ also died for sins once for all, for everyone. Now, of course, this brings in the whole debate that's gone on for centuries. Did Jesus die for everyone without exception, or did he die only for the elect? That's the Calvinist-Arminian issue. 
And the problem that I see is that there are, there's a misunderstanding of the fact that there are certain aspects of Christ's work on the cross that are for all without exception, and then there are other aspects that are not for all that are only applied to those who believe in him. So we'll see this as we go through this study. So unlimited atonement. Now, this is emphasized in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You should be there by now. That is uh, this section that deals with reconciliation, starting in these verses here, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 and following. This is, uh, this is the context, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and following. And so we read here, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. There is a reality to what Christ did on the cross that is truly and actually applied to everyone. Verse 15, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Now, I want you to notice this. He died for all. That's everyone. That's the big circle. includes every human being. And then the second clause, that those who live, that is a subset. Those who live is a smaller group than all. All is every human being. Those who live is the subset of that smaller, much smaller group that believe in Jesus for eternal life. Those who live should no longer, no, no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So we have unlimited atonement. Christ died for all. Then the penalty of sin problem is taken care of by a payment for the sin, and that is known as redemption, redemption. And whenever you hear the word redemption, that is an economic term, and again, it's the idea of paying a price for something. Now, a couple of good verses for redemption are 1 Timothy 2.6 and 2 Peter 2.1. Now, notice both of these use words for redemption. Two different word groups are used for redemption in the New Testament. One is based on lutrao, which emphasizes the payment of a price, and one is based on agorazo, which is the idea of going into the marketplace to make a purchase. So in 1 Timothy 2.6, we read that the who there refers to Jesus, gave himself as a ransom, as one who paid a price. He gave himself as the ransom payment uh, for all, not some, not just for those who believe, but for all the testimony born at the proper time. In 2 Peter 2, 1, we read, but false prophets also arose among the people. And this is referring to believers who are false prophets. There's a lot of false prophets out there who are going to be in heaven. Uh, you can just probably turn on your television any day and you find a lot of people on there who are teaching uh, false doctrine. And uh, yet they are believers. They have understood the grace of God and they've trusted Christ as Savior, but they distort the scriptures. Peter refers to them. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So the false prophets arose in Israel in the Old Testament. False teachers will rise among you, that is, believers, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, that's important. We have to understand that there are certain false teaching. There are things that people teach that I don't agree with. They don't agree with me. I don't, agree. I don't know. We may both be wrong. That's not necessarily something to separate over. 
But there are those who teach certain doctrines that rise to the level of heresy. They deny the deity of Christ. They teach certain heresies about the Holy Spirit. They deny the closing of the canon of Scripture. These are, these are genuine and true heresies. And there needs to be a separation from them because, as Paul, as Paul says, a little leaven can leaven the entire lump. A little sin, a little false teaching can destroy a congregation and can destroy uh, the church. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And there's the word agorazo, a word for redemption, the master who redeemed them. Many times agorazo is translated redeemed, so it's more clear if we translate it that way. Even denying the master who redeemed them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. See, that's divine discipline. That is not eternal judgment in the lake of fire. So redemption is for all. Unlimited atonement is for all. And then the third has to do with solving the problem of the character of God, propitiation. And propitiation also is directed to all. Key passages are Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.27, but specifically let's just look at that last verse on the screen, 1 John 2.2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for also for those of the whole world. Now I want you to notice that in terms of the sin problem, it's solved through Christ's death for all. He died once for all. In terms of the sin penalty problem, the legal problem, it's solved through redemption that he bought or paid the price of sin for all, even those who false teachers who deny him. And here we have propitiation, which is for all, and that has to do with the character of God. Propitiation means that God's character, his righteousness, is satisfied with the penalty that is paid. Propitiation is a great word to use. It's a great word to learn if you don't know it. It is not a word that is commonly used today because most people in America think that that you have a problem if you use a word that has more than two syllables. You can't really text it very well on your uh, cell phone. He himself is the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins, but not for ours, that is, not for believers only, but also for those of the whole world. That's unbelievers. And so we see that in this, this bottom area, those three, the problems were Godward, and the solution is Godward, and that is related to all, as we'll see. Then you have the problem of a lack of righteousness. This is solved by two things, the imputation of righteousness, which is the basis for God declaring us to be just. Romans 4.3 says, For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted or imputed to him as righteousness. It's stated again in Galatians 3.6, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. This is a quote from Genesis 15.6. Old Testament... Jewish saints of the Old Testament, Christians in the New Testament are all saved on one basis, faith in God, faith in the promise of God that's related to salvation. The specific context content of that is broader in the Old Testament because it just related to the promise of God of, of, of a solution to sin. 
In the New Testament, it is has been specifically taken care of in the person of Jesus, so that there is now no salvation in any other, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So Romans 4, 3 and Galatians 3, 6 cite the Genesis 15, 6 passage. Imputation and justification solve the problem of our righteousness. We're born spiritually dead. That is solved through regeneration. We must be born again. Titus 3, 5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 2.13, he has made us alive together with him. We are born spiritually dead, physically alive, and now he makes us spiritually alive when we trust in Christ. And last but not least, in 2 Corinthians uh, I mean, Romans 5, we're taught that we're dead in in Adam. Those in Adam are dead. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we're told that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Now, the totality of this work, everything that's done in this barrier, the totality of that comes under the category of reconciliation. It is the removal of that barrier. God's work to remove the barrier between God and man is his work of reconciliation so that God has reconciled us through the cross, which occurred in A.D. 33. He reconciled us to him. But that's only part of the story, as we'll see. Now to our passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and following. In 5.17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There we have that word, all things, again. But this is related to uh, everything related to the life, the spiritual life of that individual who trusts in Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, we read, Now all things are of God, uh, uh, who has reconciled us to himself, through Jesus Christ, and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, one of the interesting things you should do sometime, uh, if you have the opportunity, is to read through Second Corinthians chapter 5 uh, here and take a look at the shift between the first person plural pronouns and the second person uh, pronouns, you versus we or us. If you look at verse... Go back to verse 12, we read, Paul saying, For we do not commend ourselves. Who's the we? The we there probably refers to not just Paul and his entourage, but to the apostles, Paul and the other apostles. Now, the reason uh, that we say that is that if you look down in uh, verse 16, he says, uh, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Now, that makes it clear. Those who knew Christ in his physical incarnation were the apostles. So there it's clear that the we must refer to that narrow group of the apostles and the foundation of apostolic teaching. And so Paul says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, you being the Corinthian believers, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. That is where it's superficial. There's no regeneration. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is uh, for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. So again, you have this contrast between we, uh, the apostles, and uh, by extension, those who are associated with them, 
and for you. But as as he goes through this, you're going to see that he changes and shifts the meaning. So by the time we get to 2 Corinthians 5.18, he says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. There he begins to include his readers with the us. He's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, here the word for reconciliation isn't apokatalasso, which we had in Colossians 1, uh, 20, but it's katalasso, just the root verb. And we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. It's not just the apostles, but all believers that in Jesus Christ have been given this ministry of reconciliation. Now, in verse 19, Paul goes on to say, that is that God was in Christ. So once again, God's the one who's performing the action. Man doesn't reconcile himself to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Notice, not just believers, not just the church, but the world. We, we read earlier that, that, that in Second Peter, I mean, second, I mean, excuse me, First John 2, 2, that Christ propitiated not just our sins, but the sins of the world. The world is the in, entire inhabited planet, all of mankind. So here it's clearly stated that, that God was in Christ reconciling everyone, believer and unbeliever, to himself. And what? Not imputing their trespasses to them. Now the them clearly refers to the world, not just believers, so that sin is not the issue. That's what this is saying. God imputed the sins to Christ on the cross. He paid for them. Sin's not the issue. The problem that everybody has is not the fact that they commit sin. That's paid for by Christ. It's that they're born spiritually dead, and they can't produce the kind of righteousness God requires to get into heaven. So what we see here in summary on reconciliation is that God performs the action, the world receives the action, that is, all those, all human beings on the planet. We see that the world equals their, that is, the, he did not impute their trespasses to them, that is, the trespasses of the world to them. Therefore, sins are not imputed to the unbeliever and are not the issue at salvation. They are already paid for by Christ on the cross. This is uh, also uh, reinforced. I'll just skip, read through this very briefly. Romans 5, 6, for when we were still without strength, that is uh, spiritually impotent, uh, in due time Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, if, for if when we were enemies, see that's our legal status, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been, or because we've already been reconciled, we shall be saved. See, reconciliation's past, salvation's future. Remember in Romans, Paul never uses the word salvation to refer to justification or getting into heaven. He refers to it as the future completion of the process, or in some cases to the spiritual life but not to, as a synonym for justification. So we're reconciled individually when we trust in Jesus, and this culminates in our spiritual growth, which is based on observing, in this case, observing and following the pattern of Jesus in terms of his life. Verse 11, not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. 
So on the one hand, God reconciles us to him, but on the other hand, we have to receive that reconciliation. Back to 2 Corinthians 5. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, not just apostles, but all believers. We have been called into a position as ambassadors to represent the throne of God to the earth. This is related to the doctrine of citizenship. Our citizenship is not on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we have a message of reconciliation. The word there that is pleading is the word parakaleo, which means to summon, to exhort, to encourage, to simply announce to somebody. We present a claim. We make the announcement to people. Uh, We implore you, and that word for implore is the word deomai, which simply means it can mean to pray, to ask, maybe to implore, to beg. But let's just translate with the idea of ask. We're asking people. We're giving them the the solution, and we're asking them to be reconciled to God. Uh, That is the message. It's an aorist passive imperative. The aorist imperative emphasizes its priority. This is a high-priority command, be reconciled to God. So how does this take place? Well, first of all, because in the objective sense, God's character, the legal penalty for sin, and the problem of sin itself were taken care of by the cross. But the top part, to gain righteousness, to be uh, have uh, to become alive when we're spiritually dead, to have our position in Adam exchanged for a position in Christ. That comes only when we believe in Jesus. At the instant we trust in Christ as Savior, he uh, regenerates us, he imputes to us Christ's perfect righteousness, declares us to be just, and then we are baptized or identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and placed in Christ so that then we are not only reconciled to God positionally or in terms of objectively, in terms of what God did in terms of reconciling the world, but we are reconciled personally and individually, and we have become reconciled to God because of our faith and trust in him. And so the command for us as believers, this is our mission, every one of us. We are given, delegated the responsibility to be ambassadors, to make a proclamation to everyone on earth that they are to be reconciled to God. They are to make that objective reconciliation real in their own life, and that only comes by personally trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's not by works of righteousness. It's not by any other thing. It is simply by believing in Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for our sins. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this this morning, to understand more fully the many dynamics, the many dimensions to our salvation, that sin presented a multiplicity of problems, each of which was taken care of by Jesus Christ's death on the cross, as predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures and fulfilled in the Gospels. We understand that all of these problems were completely resolved in Christ so that his death is sufficient for our salvation. We do nothing to earn it or deserve it. We do nothing and can do nothing to merit your grace. It is simply an act of accepting it as a free gift. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who has never accepted that gift, that has never uh, trusted in Christ as Savior, they're unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of uh, their salvation, that they can make that sure and certain right now by putting their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. The Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that each of us will be able to think through the issues, the doctrines we briefly studied this morning, that they may come to a fuller understanding and appreciation for all that you have done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.